Morning, everyone. I am really, really glad you're here. My thanks to Zach and our team, worship team, for leading us in worship and song. And I'd be remiss today if I didn't take a moment to express to you, on a personal note, how much I appreciate our worship team, what they, their dedication, what they, what they live out, what they speak, what they do, the fact that they're faithful. Not only the members that you see up here singing and leading uh, in, in terms of the musical expression, but also for Jeremy, for Lizzie, for those that work back in the booth. Right. The, these are worthy of honor, are they not? Yes. yes thank you for that. Um, it's a precious team, and I used the word with them this morning when I prayed with them that, for me, when I walk in these doors, I find great comfort knowing that they're here. And so we worship in song, and let's worship in the Word, shall we? We find ourselves in our journey through the book of 1 Corinthians at chapter 15, and I want to share a message called, Of First Importance, Essential Elements of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And I would invite you, if you would, to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let me tell you what our plan is today. I want to unpack those first 11 verses of that chapter this morning, and I want to invite you to engage with me in understanding and applying and determining what some of the implications of these truths are for you, for me, for us. As Paul begins to write this letter, and we've gone through this these last few months, we see some things in this letter. We he introduces a strategy change in his ministry. He said, hey, I, when I came to you, I purposed to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And he contrasts that with earthly wisdom, man's wisdom, persuasive speech. He tried that in Athens, and it didn't work very well. So he said, hey, when I came to you guys, this is what I focused on, Christ and him crucified. Actually, I could end a sermon today. I could say, that's first importance and we could all go home, right? <laughs> and then he responds to this series of issues that the church was having. He speaks to the fact that they had disunity in their church. They had divisions. They had camps. And he encouraged them, hey, pursue unity. He talks about the authority of apostles and pastors and how those men should function in the church. He talks about a sexual ethic for believers, how believers and followers of Christ are to conduct themselves sexually. He talks about the fact that they were suing each other. Can you imagine that? Members of the church suing each other in open court. Talks about marriage. Talks about spiritual gifts. He makes a beeline to the 13th chapter, and many of you know this chapter well. He talks about, he said, let me show you a still more excellent way. It's the way of love. It's a love that's indescribable. It's a love that's not capable by human means. It's a love that bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That love is not possible outside of Christ. He talks about that. And he talks about all these things, but then he gets to the root issue, the most significant issue that the church at Corinth is facing. And may I say that we face today, 
It's the gospel. So I would invite you, if you're able, to please stand in honor of reading God's Word. We're going to begin in chapter 15 at verse 1. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes. He said, now, and what, he's, what he means there is that in light of what he just talked about, all these issues that he, he's mentioned, now in light of that, I would remind you, brothers, now, Brothers is a term that's inclusive for women. He's writing to believers. is what, So he's talking to men and women. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, which you stand, and by which you're being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. This is the Word of the Lord. Father, we thank You today for blessing the hearing of Your Word, the reading of Your Word, the teaching, preaching, understanding, application of Your timeless God-breathed Word. May it penetrate to our souls today and bring about life change about clear direction, about hope, purpose. May we understand first importance today. In the name of Jesus, I pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. So that's the way this passage begins. And there's some things I want you to see really quickly. If you're a note taker, it's number one in your notes. And you see it in that very first phrase. We all sometimes need to be reminded of what's most important. Isn't that true? If I shared with you, if I did a little booth out in the foyer and I told you that I had a stock tip that would make you a millionaire, I bet I would have people lined up (laughs) to the parking lot. Would that be true? So I I don't want to make light of what Paul's saying here in the language that he's using. This is first importance. He's saying, I want to remind you, I know you've heard it before. I've been there. I was the founder of your church. I've preached this gospel. I purpose to know nothing except Christ and Him crucified among you. I'm underlining this. I'm highlighting this. I'm putting a big exclamation point at the end. I'm reminding you in my letter of what's most important. My best friend is a college basketball coach. He coaches at University of Central Oklahoma in Edmond, Oklahoma. Every summer, he has camps, team camps, individual camps. They're excellent. He focuses on fundamentals, and I've had the privilege of being part of that primarily because I had some grandsons there. (laughs) So I got to work with him, and what he does, what Coach Hoffman does, he begins by teaching dribbling. And if you're right-hand dominant, he talks about how that should look. You can see how much I've forgotten. I'm supposed to dribble with my head up, right, looking out. But my right hand is dominant. Then he begins to focus that your left hand, if you're weak with your left hand or weak with your right hand, focus on your weak hand. People can't stop you. So he, he focuses on the fundamentals of dribbling. He focuses on the fundamentals of footwork, what your footwork should look like. He focuses on defense, 
He also focuses on passing, and I've asked Brent Hagen uh, to help me demonstrate this. Brent is a former elder. He's a, a wonderful, precious leader in our student ministry. Uh, they just got back from Revive right in Florida and had a great time. Yeah, we should clap for that too. I, I didn't mention that first two services. So I've asked Brent to demonstrate this with me. So what Coach Hoffman teaches is that when I pass, because I'm right-hand dominant, I'm going to lead with my right strong foot, and I'm going to two-hand chest pass and try to hit Brent directly in the chest where he can receive it and be ready to do what he's willing to do. And by the way, in the first service, Jonathan Spradley helped me, and Maxine moved over two chairs. <laughs> she doesn't trust that. And, and what Coach Hoffman also teaches is that when I pass to someone, I'm to call their name. It's to promote teamwork and unison, right? So ready, Brent? Brent, then you call my name. There you go. Brent. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, Brent. Where's Carvin? Did he leave? Did Carvin really leave? So, hey, Carvin, I'm going to use you to demonstrate a baseball pass, okay? <laughs> what am I leaving out? Talked about dribbling, passing, defense, footwork. What am I leaving out? Shooting. Do I get any points, any points for form and style and being the best dribbler on the court? How about the best passer? We don't keep score that way, do we? The objective of the game is to put the ball in the basket. That's how we keep score. That's the most important thing in a basketball game. So I want you, I want you to watch this church. At a church like Huddle Bible, and in the letter like 1 Corinthians, Paul says we're going to talk about a lot of stuff. We're going to talk about spiritual gifts. We're going to talk about marriage. We're going to talk about unity. We're talking about living right sexually with one another. We're going to talk about not suing one another. We're going to talk about how to love one another as Christ loved us. All those things are important, but they're like passing and dribbling and footwork and defense. They're not the most important thing. The most important thing, and this is what I want to talk to you about today, the most important thing is the gospel, and that's what I want to remind you of. And it's note two in your notes. He says, I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel, the gospel that I preach to you. This is the most important thing. Now, in your notes, and I don't want to, I'm not trying to make you a Greek scholar, but I included some etymology of, of the word gospel. It's in your notes. The noun is evangelion. It simply means the good news, the good message. The verb is evangeliso, and that means to be a sharer of the good news or one that tells that story. Both of those words appear in the first verse of this chapter. Paul says, I remind you, brothers, of the gospel. That's the noun. That's evangelion. That's the good news. And then he says, that I preached to you. That's evangeliso. I preached it to you. I spoke it to you. There's actually another form. It's in your notes as well. Evangelistes. 
That's where we get our word evangelist. It's a person who tells the good news. So what we see, and the first thing that we need to be reminded of is that the gospel is the most important thing. The next thing I want to talk to you about, there's four things that we see in the first two verses that tell us about the gospel. The first is that the gospel is something that is preached or spoken, a message that's to be communicated verbally. Paul says, I want to remind you of that gospel I preached to you. I was the teller. I was the share. My verb. So what it tells us is that the gospel is to be communicated verbally. Number two, he says, which you received. That means the gospel is either something you receive or you reject. You either agree that it's true or you reject it. You either respond to the message of the gospel or you hold it at arm's length. You either take it into your heart or you say, I don't believe that. That's not true. And the third thing he says is the gospel is something in which believers take their stand. You see that? He says, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. Listen, beloved church, once you've received the gospel, it begins to shape your worldview. It changes your assumptions. It changes your framework for living. The gospel should become your foundation, the place where you take your stand. When you come to those seasons of your life, in the darkest nights of your soul, and you're not sure which way to go or what the direction should be or what the answer is, when you have nowhere else to go, the gospel is the place that you make and take your stand. And I left this out of your notes, and please forgive me, and I was reviewing this morning, and I thought I've left something out really important here. So if you, if you are a note-taker, please add this. It's number four. The gospel is something by which believers are being saved. We're being saved by the gospel. That's what Paul says. So what does it mean to be saved? Normally, if I ask someone that question, I hear something like this, that it means I have eternal life and I'm going to heaven. And those things are true. But it also means this. When the Apostle Paul was writing this literature, I believe what he is really referring to here is something called the Day of the Lord. What that was, was a common belief in Jewish circles that there would be a day that the Messiah would come back to earth. And when he came, he was going to judge the living and the dead. And his purpose for those who rejected the gospel, for those who did not receive that, was that those people would die a second death. You see, we're all going to die a first death unless the Lord comes today. Even so, come quickly, right? Amen? It wouldn't bother me one bit. He came right at this moment. <laughs> But there's a second death, folks. 
For those that reject the gospel, that do not receive it into their heart and see a life change, there's a lake of fire. And I wouldn't love you if I wouldn't tell you about this. There's a place of eternal damnation and eternal death. So that's what we're saved from. We're saved from that. So what we see, this gospel is to either be received or rejected. It's to be spoken verbally. We're to stand on it. We're being saved by it. And it's essential, critical to our salvation. There's one more thing before I leave these verses that the Apostle Paul says, and it's in the first part of verse 3. Please look at it. He says, for I delivered, and if you would circle that word delivered, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And circle the word received, if you would. Now, here's the implication. If you read this carefully, it's number four in your notes. The gospel is not something we are free to change. We are to receive it and pass it on or hand it on to others. We are not to change the gospel ever. So in other words, what the Apostle Paul is saying, does someone say amen to that? Good, they should. I should have paused right there. We're not to change it. The Apostle Paul is saying, I didn't create this gospel. I didn't make it up. I received this directly from the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and I'm passing it simply passing it on to you. And another reference in the book of Jude, the, the writer Jude says it this way, that the content of our faith is called this, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So in other words, it's been delivered to us who follow Christ. It's been handed to us. And our responsibility, what we should be compelled to do, is to hand it on to others but we're not to change it in the process. So let's look at the content, the elements of the gospel. We'll find those in verses 3 through 8. Look at it with me if you would. We'll begin in verse 3. He said, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, and here it is, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. In other words, some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So here's the essential elements of the gospel first, is that Christ died for our sins. We say, Pastor Mike, I know that, okay? Well, my question is, do you? Look, you can't share the gospel with someone if you don't begin at the cross. I want you to think with me for a moment about that moment, that day that Christ was crucified. I want you to think, and sometimes, and appropriately so, we talk about it in, ter in somber terms and in terms of darkness, because there was, it was darkness on the face of the earth. But without that moment, we could never celebrate the resurrection. 
without the fact that the Son of God willingly came to die and substitute for our sins. It's the pinnacle moment of human history. It's why creation groaned for his appearing. It's the supreme act of love. If you ever doubt that you're loved, all you have to do is think about Calvary. Think about Golgotha. Maybe you're like me and you've had moments in your life where you wonder, does, does anyone really love me at all? I mean, right? If you have a little pity party, is, is it just me or is it anybody else like that, right? If you ever wonder, are you loved? Look at the cross. The second thing is that he was buried. What that means is that bodily and physically, he died. It literally happened. Jesus died. And Paul's essentially saying, look, there's a tomb. I can take you to Jerusalem. I can show you the tomb where he was laid. And guess what? That tomb is empty. <laughs> and that leads us to the third. He was gloriously resurrected on the third day, according to the scriptures. He came to life in a glorified body. And the fourth is he appeared to more than 500 people. You and I and a few others may concoct a story and get our facts straight and try to represent it as the truth. And maybe that'll last for a while, but do you think you can get 500 people to agree on something? <laughs> Just won't happen, will it? Not one single instance in recorded early church history did everyone who was a witness to the death and burial and resurrection of Christ deny him. Not one. And then last is that all this, Paul says, is in accordance with the Scriptures. In other words, it wasn't just a chance happening. It wasn't just a random event. It was purposeful. God planned it. There was one plan for the ages, redemptive plan for mankind, plan A, and it was this. Now, I wonder if the Apostle Paul had in mind when he said in accordance with the Scriptures, a passage like, Isaiah 53, maybe you're familiar with that passage. The prophet Isaiah lived 700 years before Jesus was born. And under the power of the Holy Spirit, as he's carried along by the winds of the Holy Spirit, he writes these words. He says, but he, Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Later on in this passage, Isaiah says that it pleased the Lord to do this to Christ. Can you imagine watching your son die a brutal criminal's death, his body marred, broken? Why? Why did it please the Lord? The, the writer of Hebrews puts it this way. He said that Christ Jesus despised the shame and looked forward to a day. He endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. I'm looking at that joy right now. You see, we're that joy. Christ knew that by his sacrifice, by the fact that he would be broken, 
and the, the iniquity of all of us. Can you imagine? I know what the weight of my own sin is like. What, what's it like in your life? All of that was laid upon him because of the joy that was set before him, and we are that joy. Isn't that a glorious thought? He says, upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And then the Bible tells us about our condition in verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. That means everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on Christ the iniquity of us all. The reason the gospel is necessary, the reason that it's of first importance is because of our sin. All of us are born into sin. That's a word that for some reason we don't really use much in evangelical circles today. And I'm not trying to be a a trendsetter or anything here, but look, folks, the scripture teaches this. Because I love you and I care and I want to be true to the scripture, I would be lying to you and not representing the truth if I didn't tell you that you were a sinner. There's no such thing as good people. We can talk about that after the service if you ask if you want to ask me, okay? We're sinners. We are dead in our sins. We only come alive when we receive and accept the gospel. The gospel's a rescue mission, church. God sent his son to rescue us. He's not one of many. There may be those that follow other gods, other deities, but none of those gods died for you and me so that we might be set free. So, when I hear this gospel, when we hear this gospel, what is our appropriate response? What's our appropriate response? Well, the three things. First of all, we should repent. We should agree with God, I am a sinner. That's not self-deprecating. That's just understanding identity before Christ and then what it's like after Christ. It's saying, I agree with you, Father, that I'm a sinner. I repent in godly sorrow. That means to turn my back on that way of living and to go in a different direction. Second is that I should believe. I remember not long before my father died, my father had a rough life. He told me one day he had listened to a sermon of a man who had been dead for six years. He didn't realize he was a pastor. My dad didn't go to church. And he said, how? He said, I've been a terrible father. I've been a terrible husband. How could God forgive me? How could he forgive me? I said, well, dad, are you willing to repent? Of that sin? He said, yes. I said, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that God raised him from the dead? He said, yes, I do. And people wonder, is it that simple? That's what the Scripture teaches. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you believe that God raised him from the dead? Do you believe that at this very moment in time and history and space, he's at the right hand of the Father interceding for us? Do you believe that? And then the last is I should be baptized. And I want to share with you, and I want to be clear, that is not responsible, uh, that's not a requirement for your salvation is that you be baptized. But the reason I mention it is because Jesus commands it. 
when he tells us to go into the world and be his witness, and make disciples, he says, he commands us, we call this the Great Commission. It wasn't the Great Suggestion, right? I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It, it's not a requirement for salvation. It doesn't mean that you're saved when you're baptized. But look, it just tells the world that you are. So maybe that's a step that you haven't taken in your walk. And I would just encourage you today, if you're being stirred in your soul and in your spirit, maybe it's something you need to pay attention to. So do you see today what the Apostle Paul is saying? He says, I want to remind you what's most important. I want to remind you that we're to communicate this gospel verbally. I want to remind you that it can be received or rejected. I want to remind you, this is where you will take your stand. I want to remind you that you're not at liberty to change it. I want to remind you that you are simply to receive it and hand it on. So I'm going to ask you a question today, and this is new for me. This is not rhetorical. I want you to share with me out loud what you see would be the implications for this set of truths for you and me today. Anybody? Who's that, who said that? Share the gospel. How about that? Can I, can I pause there for a minute? I mean, that, that's such an important implication. The implication is that we should all be sharers or tellers. We should all be that third word that we saw in that noun verb. Uh, we should all be evangelistes, correct? That's what the scriptures teach us. So let me add, now this question is rhetorical, but I want to ask you a question in light of that implication. When is the last time you were intentional about sharing with someone the gospel, hoping that person would be under conviction by the power of the Holy Spirit, hoping and praying that that person would repent and believe and be baptized and follow Christ. Ponder that. I'm not asking for an answer because that's an important implication. Thank you for that. And by the way, because I think that implication is so important, uh, you know, if I believe the gospel, I should share the gospel. It's not dependent on my method, my eloquence, all of those things. No, the scripture teaches us that the power of God, Romans 1.16, is in the gospel. It's not in how we present it. It's not in my, our eloquence. No, it's in the gospel itself. What we read today, Christ died for our sins, right? That he was buried, that he rose from the third day. So we should be an eager share of the gospel. Thank you for that. Anything else? Anyone? Sorry. Give out what you receive. Flesh that out a little bit for me. That's really good. So it was said, give out what you receive, preach the gospel you, because you love and care about somebody else. Thank you. Thank you. That's good. Be an example. Okay. I agree with that. But I want to, I want to share some things with you on that. Can I do that? <laughs> I'm not laughing because it's funny here. So, um, well, before I do that, can I, can I ask, can I mention one other scenario that I want to touch on? Is that okay? How about let me ask you this. In our culture today, is the gospel of Jesus Christ ever distorted, distorted or changed in any way? Yes. It is, isn't it, right? 
So I won't get into any of the details. I'm sure you guys already know. But regardless of the scenario, regardless of what it is, if we distort something that's foundational and true in Scripture, for example, I'll give an example, marriage, right? Marriage is something in Scripture that is clearly defined, and we've distorted that in our culture today, and some, even in some ways that's assimilating, being assimilated in the church. If, if something that the Bible says is sinful and dishonors the Lord, if it's being approved, well, you say, well, Pastor Mike, how's that related to the gospel? Well, here it is. What was the very first element that we read that Paul wrote? He said, I deliver this to you first importance that Christ did what? Come on. Died for, Died for our what? What happens when we redefine sin? It doesn't matter what the category is, right? I'm not talking, you know, we sometimes we focus on something unduly. And by the way, does it mean that we're not to love people who are in sin? Aren't we glad that someone loved us when we were in sin? Right? So we're not to be hateful, judgmental. That's not our job. Our job is to tell them good news. And the good news is that what God says is true is true. (laughs) And that because of the gospel, we can live that. So when Paul says Christ died for our sins, if I make the mistake of redefining sin and then I never repent of that sin, consequently, there's not forgiveness of that sin. Do you see how insidious that is? That's the danger in that issue. I want to get to what you said, Veronica, but I want to do this first. Paul just didn't write these words, and they sounded really good on paper. First importance, he lived it. Let me give you an example. It's late in his life. He's heading back to Jerusalem. Actually, from this point on in his life, he was pretty much in prison. So he's meeting with the elders of the church at Ephesus. He's meeting them on the coast, and he says this to them. I want you to hear this because this is from the Word of God. He says this. I don't count my life of any value, nor is precious to myself. If only I might, first of all, finish my course. Well, here's here's what he meant by that. Each of us has a course in life. The Lord determines who we're born to, who our parents are, what our particular geography, where we live, who we marry. Children, I can't explain it to you, (laughs) but that's the sovereignty of God, is it not? God determines those things. We do have say, but our course, what Paul is saying, I want to finish my course. I want to finish strong. Each of us in here individually has a course, right? But then he says the next thing, and this is not just individual. This is universal. He says, and the ministry that's been entrusted to me to testify to the gospel, there's that word, of the grace of God. So what he's saying is, I want to finish strong. The gospel is my life song. My question for you today, is it yours? Beloved, I'm not trying to lay, I'm not, this is not an evangelism course. It's not, I just want you to know that you will find 
a major purpose in your life if you can understand that this, as a follower of Christ, should be your life song. It should be like a wellspring of living water that flows out from you. Why? Because you love people. Occasionally, I'll bump into someone who says, Pastor, man, I appreciate you challenging us to share the gospel. This is, I'm going to get to your point here, Veronica. Um, but I prefer to share the gospel by living my life. I'm going to, I, don't, I won't say anything out loud. I just want to live my life for Christ. I think if I live a good life for Christ, that'll be enough. And in some ways, there's some truth in that. And occasionally, I've had this happen. The person who tells me that would give me this quote, and this quote has been attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. Here it is. Preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. Have you guys ever heard this quote or seen it? Anybody? Well, there's a couple problems with this quote. First of all, St. Francis of Assisi never said this. The best biographers of him, the ones that have studied his life carefully, say he never said that. In fact, he was a fiery preacher. He was like Billy Graham or whoever else comes to your mind. And it was said of him that he would stand on boxes, preach on boxes in city squares, and his preaching would be so uh, active that his feet would be moving and it would look like he's dancing. This guy never said that. But here's the most important problem that I have with this. If there are no words, if I never said to someone that there's a great God in heaven who loved the world and loved me and you so much that he would give his son? If I never told someone that that son would willingly die and be crushed for my sin, if I never told a person that that man would be buried and that gloriously he would be raised on the third day, if I never said to them, if you repent and believe, your life could be forever changed. You can be saved from the day of the Lord into eternal life. If I never loved someone enough to say those words, then that person will never be saved. So beloved, listen. Live a life full of good works. That's a good thing. Live a life as an example, I don't trust somebody that has a lot to say that their life doesn't match up, right? Live a life of good works. But let's be a people who are clear about the gospel. Let's be a people who share the gospel. Let's be a people who celebrate the life that we have in Christ through the gospel. Let's be a people who can truly say, the gospel is of first importance. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the gospel. I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you for the privilege I have of heralding a message from a king. Lord, I ask today that your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would penetrate into souls that you would bring about conviction if there be someone here 
today who has rejected the gospel, who has not believed, who's kept it at arm's length, could today be a day? And for those of us that have followed you and confessed you as Lord, may we discover the beauty of the life song of being a teller, of being an evangelista today. I pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. As the worship team plays in the background, I'm going to invite you in a few moments to come and receive the elements of communion, the Lord's Supper. But here's the question I want to ask you. I want you to ponder and think about. I'm going to ask you as you receive the elements to go back to your seats, chairs, and be seated for a few moments. I'm going to ask you to consider this question. When Paul was wrapping this up, when he said that last of all, the Lord appeared to him as one untimely born, and he said, Paul says, I'm the least of the apostles because I persecuted the church of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine what it was like for him? Knowing that he was responsible if he didn't directly do it for killing Christians. Did Christ forgive him? Of course he did. But he never forgot it. We see it in his words for the remainder of days. Maybe there's something in your life. It's not as egregious as that, but you remember. Christ has forgiven you. But you remember it now. I want to encourage you today that even though you remember that Paul Paul went on to say, but by the grace of God, I am who I am. I want you to ponder today as we get ready to take the Lord's Supper, God's grace that's been applied in your and my life. Would you do that and celebrate the finished work of the cross with me? Come and let's receive the elements of Was he being self-deprecating there? No. He understood who he was before Christ. His thoughts are because he persecuted the church. And he couldn't be held in the same regard as Peter and the others. But he said, but by, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And then he says this. His grace towards me was not in vain. One of the ways that grace could be in vain is if you're holding on to something in your past that's covered in the blood of Jesus, but it's crippling you. It's like a wound that's not healed. So what I'm sharing with you today is by the power of the gospel and the truth of God's word is do not let his grace be in vain in your life. Take the symbol of his body, which he said I willingly allow to be broken. I'm going to die. My body will be the payment for your sins. Take and eat. took the cup 
which represented the Passover cup, the angel of death would pass over the people of Israel and Egypt. And he said, but I'm going to give you a new covenant today because my blood is the final payment for that sin. But it's more than that. It's life. The life we know, medically speaking, is in the blood. Eternal life for us is in the blood of Christ. Take with us where two or three are gathered there you are also we honor you celebrate you we thank you that you've died for our sins may become first importance in our life we love you and worship you it's in your name we pray amen let's worship together first importance that concept well in your soul preach the gospel to yourself every day know that it's a place that you can stand know that no matter what is coming against you it's the place that's sure and solid foundation stand in it know that as you stand receive it and you believe it and you pass it on may the Lord bless and keep you may the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you may the Lord lift up his countenance to you this day may he give you his peace you are loved and God bless you today you're dismissed